welcome to another edition of Quanta Cafe. My name is Paul Gilbert. I'm the CEO of Quanta. And I have the privilege of speaking with academic leaders from all over the world. And today I have no ordinary guy. Today I'm really pleased to introduce Dr. Robert Bishop. I like to consider him a, a friend of mine, but seriously, he's got a, a tremendous background. He's currently the Dean of Engineering at the University of South Florida. And previously he was the Dean of Marquette University and was at the faculty of the University of Texas for, for about 20 years where he served as the chairman of the Department of Aerospace and Engineering Mechanics. His specialist area is in the uh, area of control systems theory, guidance and control of aircraft and navigation, with applications across a very wide range of aerospace challenges. And during his career, he's had so many sponsors. I mean, three or four NASA research centers have, have supported him, NEC, National Instruments, Lockheed Martin. And his current uh, research interests are advanced navigation algorithm uh, development in small satellites and unmanned vehicles and cybersecurity. About his career, I mean, there is so much to say about Bob. I mean, one thing that really excited me early in your career, Bob, you supported the NASA's space shuttle first rendezvous. That must be incredible. We can we can talk about that in a second. But to my staff, to my engineering students, he's a bit of a legend. He is also the co-author of the Modern Control Systems, uh, which is uh, one of the, the the widest read control textbooks in the world. And he's also authored a number of other books, including Learning with LabVIEW and, and a book on mechatronics. But like I said, uh, I consider Bob to be my friend. He's no, he, he, he is a mere mortal, but you know, um, like I said, for my guys, he's a bit of a legend. And, and I remember meeting him, uh, I think first time in Hawaii, at one of the engineering conferences that we have. And I can tell you, he's a very down to earth guy, very humble. Uh, if you meet him in a bar, he'll buy you a drink and, and, and have a good chat with you. So welcome, Bob. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, it's fantastic. Paul. Thanks. Thanks for that uh, nice, kind introduction. Glad to be here. Well, you know, it's it, it's interesting because I do remember coming back from that conference, and I said to my team, I said, "You know who I met at the conference?" And it was like Bob, Bob, the Bob Bishop. You know, and 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 really, you know, you provided so much to 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 research and to education. And we'll talk about some of the the people that have have come through your your group as PhDs, but really. One of the things that I really want to talk to you about is the engineering education, because that's something which I know you're passionate about because it's really important to you. Um, but to get things going, maybe uh, give us a little bit of insight to what, what got you into engineering in the first place? Why did you want to become an engineer back in the day? Well, I mean, I think that um, like many people, I was, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut. I, I remember as a young boy watching, you know, uh, Armstrong and, Buzz Aldrin walking on the moon, and and that was something I I thought I would like to do, um, and so that was part of it. The other part was my father was um, a computer technician. He was a chief warrant officer in, in the army, and um, he was a computer expert at the time, way before you know the miniaturization of computers. And so we always uh, worked on things together, electronic things, uh, mechanical things. My father was uh, was wasn't an engineer by degree but he was certainly an engineer by uh, personality and interest. So it's just always been part of, you know, my family and, and my thought process. But, but how, how, do you, how do you find it when students today, when they come into universities, I mean, do you, do you think they have a real kind of grasp of what engineering is all about and what the, what's possible with engineering? Yeah, I think it's a little different, Paul. Um, I think in many ways they're much more uh, ready for um, the uh, educational process that we're about to put them through. 
in the sense that their understanding of the internet, of coding, of programming, of, you know, all those things are, is very innate to them. They were born, you know, into the uh, world of, you know, Wikipedia and Google, um, whereas we weren't, we didn't have any of that. Right. Side though is that is that is that typically we don't fix things anymore. Okay. And so the students don't have oftentimes have that experience. Now, you know, we do get a group of students uh, that come from the rural areas, and uh, they have a much more uh, wide experience in fixing things. Maybe you know mechanical things in particular. Yeah. But uh, but by and large, you know, when our TV breaks, we we, we don't we don't fix it. I mean. I used to be able to fix my car and I used to fix my cars all the time, but I popped the hood on my car today. And, and to be honest with you, I can't, I can't, I can't see the engine, right? It's just a different world. I think so in some ways they're better prepared in some ways they're uh, less prepared. So I know when you, when, when you, when we talk about uh, the engineering process or the development engineering and the, the, the notion of hands-on, you're a very hands-on guy. You like you have a lot of theoretical, but you like to make things happen, right? So you're a big believer in kind of hybrid or project learning. Uh, can you let me know a little bit about your thoughts on on that area of teaching? Yeah, I think that um, there's a trans transformation that we're going through. So you know, when uh, I remember back in the '90s, mid '90s, when we were talking about the qualities of a graduating engineer, you know, Boeing was pushing these notions, and it ultimately led to ideas about lifelong learning it led to ideas about uh, teamwork and communication things that you know that we started focusing on and as part of that we began to uh, consider more more deeply the concept of senior design projects and we did senior design projects even when i was a student but it just became a bigger part of our accreditation and our thinking uh, but oftentimes in, in 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 the ensuing years we made those problems up okay we, we sort of fabricated problem right. projects then we moved into a, an era where we in, introduced industry and government, sometimes into our senior design, and uh, they helped us put together some interesting projects for the students. So you're kind of suggesting that maybe even from as early as their freshman year that they could start taking some of these projects, be on a team, learn That's to right. work with other people and have multi-year or multi-time domain kind of uh, problems they have to, have to take care of. Yeah, no question about it. I Look, most yeah. of these students, Know how to program before they ever get to college so at the very least they could be in in, in the mode of programming and coding uh, at the very least um, but i think there's more to it than that in terms of their education now <laughs> so you know again the conversations i had before i mean i'm sure that's really easy you just bring a few faculty members in and say hey let's do it this way it'll be no problem right you can implement it next next semester right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, you know, it wouldn't be uh, interesting if it wasn't challenging, and if it wasn't challenging, we would have already done it. So, uh, but we're we're engineers. We, uh, we, you know, we we have a goal, we have objectives, we create a plan, we we'll execute on that plan. You know, the other part of it, it Paul, is that I also think that we now understand a little bit better um, that we can, in fact, deliver hybrid courses. You know, when we had to pivot and uh, last year. Uh, immediately after spring break here in March, you know, prior to that, I don't think there's any faculty member, me included, that would have said, oh, we can do that. I would say there's no way. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, you know, a week before spring break, we were told we had to do it. And then a week later, we did it. Now, we didn't do it very well. 
okay there was there were, there were lots of mistakes and it was a struggle both for students faculty and staff but we did it so now what i'm wondering though is is that is that have we learned something from that in terms of how we deliver uh, our educational materials and maybe we can integrate some of the concepts that i was discussing in terms of real projects uh instead of so many boring lectures okay now i'm not saying that the lectures uh shouldn't we shouldn't have the lectures we should have them but i think they can be presented in a, in a more complex way, which would include face-to-face, -face, include uh, synchronous, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, interaction, and also, uh, you know, lecture capture, and uh, and being able to review those lectures afterwards. Just you know, a more complex way of of presenting the material that maybe frees up the students to focus a little bit more on the hands-on and kind of the application and the faculty as well. Uh, but also maybe it can help us untangle the uh, engineering curriculum a little bit. Okay, so maybe we can start to think well, about. That... Yeah, okay. sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I know that when you were talking to me before, you were talking about the the idea of uh, switching at the pivot, and I'm interested in that that moment in time, and I'm also very interested in kind of the other, the, what else that you can do with this medium, but to get past that first hurdle, you you keep your hand and you still teach you still have students that you kind of interact with and you told me about some of the challenges that you face you know you, you can't just get up and, and lecture the way you used to so what are the, some of the things that you you changed in your style as you started going online yeah i think when you think about um presenting material in a hybrid mode uh you can't you can't just get up in front of a camera and lecture for an hour Okay, I mean, it, it, it doesn't have the same impact as when you're in front of the students and you can see them and they can see you and you can pause and you can interact with us. It's, it's not the same, you can't do that. In my opinion, what you have to re do is you have to reimagine the material. Okay, rather than breaking it down by chapters or by sections, you should break it down by modules where each module covers an, a subject area that's connected to the other modules. But what, but in my mind, you know, when I look at, let's say my class, which I've taught for a long time, when I started thinking about presenting it in a hybrid mode uh, with a combination of video uh, presentation slides, uh, interactive, uh, you know, uh, exercises and so forth, I had to rethink the entire course. Because the fact is, is that, you know, when I, when I break my course down, I can say, look, there's, there's like 20 modules here and I can present each module separately. So when I present the module, let's say it's a module on random processes. You know, it's not going to be a four-hour lecture, okay? It's going to be a 15-minute lecture, but it's going to have lots of other parts, moving parts, you know, that the students can go to, interact with. And so it takes a little bit, uh, uh, not a little bit, it takes a lot of effort. And so, you know, right. as I think about this, well, this, these are changes, right? And with changes, come sense of loss. And many faculty are gonna feel a sense of loss, that they've built their whole career on a certain structure. And now we're saying, COVID is saying, universities are saying, the public is saying, students are saying, you need to stop and think about this and maybe there's a better way to do it. So that's kind of how I think we're going. I mean, take the fundamental question of 14 weeks for a semester, three hours a week in a class why like, can you answer right. that 
why is it four years to graduate? Why isn't it three? Why isn't it five? You know, mm -hmm. we need to set, step back and think about what does it really mean to be an engineer? What are the fundamental- Well, one of the things that, yeah, one of the things that I really like about what you talked about having these, the idea of students being in a, a team working on a project, and maybe it's multi-year and it's cross-discipline. I love that because as an employer, I want to be able to bring somebody from a university who's got the skills. How do I communicate? How do I deal with milestones? How do I share tasks? You know, you're better at a certain area. You've got to hand off to me or vice versa. Those are, are really important. Um, but when you start talking about that in an academic setting, always the question comes up, but I've got all this stuff I have to teach. And now you're trying to make it more difficult. You want professional skills and you want teamwork skills. How do you possibly get that in? What's what's your response to people who, who suggest that it's not possible to do those kinds of things? Well, I think that, again, I think it, it goes back to we have to be sensitive to their sense of loss, right? They, they believe that, um, and they've been taught a certain way, and they've been teaching a certain way, and they think that that's the only way, um, and or that's the best way. And so I, I think the way that you have to approach it is, you know, rather than saying that that way is not a good way or the right way. That's not, that's not how I approach it. What I try to do is paint a picture of what it could look like and what it should look okay. like. And then hope that the faculty will say, because you know, faculty are, are they're, they're all smart people. They're, they understand, they can tell the difference between what is really good and what's kind of not so good. And so mm -hmm. you just have, you have to paint this picture of this world where students are learning the material that they need. And I'm not suggesting that we skip, you know, uh, or dumb down the curriculum in any way, or I'm just saying there's a different way to present this material uh, so that, you know, we can address the issues. Like, for example, communication. So today, if you say, oh, engineering students need to communicate better, the first thing that'll come out of many faculty is, oh, you need another course in communications. You need a required communications course. And I would say, We've been doing required communications courses for a long time, and yet now you're telling me that they still can't communicate. So what I would say is maybe we can reimagine that. Same thing with writing, okay? What I think we need to do is vertically integrate those concepts into our everyday life as a student so that we write all the time, so that we communicate all the time, so that we uh, you know, work uh, together, maybe not all the time, but, but a lot of the time. Uh, and, and, and in that process, uh, we learn the basics that we that we need that we need to learn. Okay, I mean I don't know what other faculty will tell you, but when I took differential equations, I had no clue what I was why, why I needed that. I mean I had no idea. It wasn't until much later that I realized, oh, in in controls and systems, this is fundamental. This is like basic, right? Right. It was probably two years after I took it that I it finally dawned on me I needed it. Well, I don't think that's the way we should teach today. I think I think we should teach, you know, uh, what what is needed in a modular form, uh, sort of before it's needed, but 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 not not so far before it's needed that students can't figure it out, right? And so, um, but it takes, it's going to take a lot of work, Ball, and it's going to it's going to take a national um, a push in order to get to this place because. Faculty are feeling uh, lots of stress right now. Students in the families right, are right. stress right now. Uh, administrators are feeling lots of stress right now. Budget stress, political stress, all kinds of stress. 
it's kind of a difficult moment to come in and say, hey, you know, you need to change everything you've been doing. Okay. So yeah, but I, I mean, it, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, you're absolutely right. And that's the message that, 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 that I get every time I talk to somebody about this is, is, you know, what's, what's the future look like? Is it going back to the, to, to the way it was? Is there, is there a new normal? What, what's your sense of the sentiment? I, I mean, you're right. You don't want to be imposing a brand new paradigm because it's, it's, it's kind of challenging. But I think you do want to be taking the best of what's possible with technology. Yeah, I think that we're learning um, how to utilize the technology better. I think the technology got way out ahead of us um, in terms of all the possibilities uh, for delivering material and coursework um, from a remote, you know, district, you know, remote uh, um, location. You know, so I think that we need to learn how to do that. Right? How do you teach a hybrid course? How do you stand in front of a, of a class that's got 100 students in it, but only 20 are sitting there, and 40 are at their apartments and dorms and coffee shops, and the other, you know, other students are waiting for the night, for the evening to review the class. Now, how do you do that, right? And so it's it's not it's not I don't have the answer to that. I'm learning. I'm I'm going through it myself in one of my courses, so I'm learning uh, how that thinking process goes. But it, uh, it's not going to be quick, and there are some courses for which it's going to make much more sense. Uh, and some courses, it's not going to make maybe any sense at all. Okay, it's not clear in my own mind what do we do about certain labs. Okay, it's not clear in my own mind how we can teach certain materials from a distance. I don't know the answer, but I do think that we won't go back to the way we were in its entirety we will try to right because that's what faculty will do mm -hmm. we're going to try to get back to exactly where they were right i mean i i know right. that you know faculty are going to want to uh throw away all of their online materials and they're going to want to go right back to the classroom and in some cases that makes sense you know i'm not saying that that's not a good thing um but i do think for most of us we need to reimagine what that um process looks like because I, again, you know, um, we deal with students who, um, who have other things in their life as well that uh, distract them. Uh, you know, some of them have to work part-time. Uh, some of them have families. Uh, you know, there's, a, you know, you know, there's a, all kinds of people that, 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 uh, um, that attend uh, engineering, engineering school. And so we need yeah, to- Yeah, I was either. gonna say, yeah, I was I was gonna I was gonna say that that, that one of the things that is interesting is there are many people who may have to have a second job. They maybe got to travel downtown to the campus, or how far they got to travel, and it's a lot more convenient than to do it remotely. Uh, they might miss out on the social side, which is another aspect of it. But we talked about the notion of democratizing education, and 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 you had some interesting ideas about. How, how that can be done, not just maybe in one university, but maybe statewide or, or, or nationwide. There are ways that we can take advantage of the technology that, that we haven't done in the past. Well, you know, um, let me address what you uh, suggested first about the other reasons for going to college. And I, and I totally agree that, uh, that there are activities that students are very interested in, in addition to their classes. They're interested in student organizations. Um, they're interested in doing right. research you know, with the faculty. They're interested in going to sporting events and concerts. You know, they're they're interested in hanging out, you know, at the at the uh, coffee shop with their with their friends, and those things are important. Um, but 
the the second thing that you that you uh, talked about is is maybe a little bit more complex, and that is resources, right? So you right. you take, and I'm not talking about MOOCs or, or or things like that. I'm just saying, look, if if um, if I teach a controls class, and that same controls class is taught by you know in the same textbook at 300 universities, is it possible that maybe we could teach it at 20 universities? Okay, yeah. use the technology properly now. That's not a MOOC, okay, I'm talking about something different, something more advanced, but is it possible for us to, to, to stop thinking that every university has to be a duplicate of every other university, right? I mean, think about it, what do we always talk about? Who are our aspirational peers? What does that mean? It means who do we want to be like? What does that mean? What do they have that we have and we want to have some of that? Well, I don't know if if that's necessarily the way to move in, into the next 10 years, 20 years. I, I, I don't think it is. I don't see why we can't come to a better um, um, place where the best teachers are teaching the classes around the country. And, and does that mean that we don't need as many faculty? I don't see it that way. I think what it means is that faculty have time now to do other things like their research, like working with the community, uh, like working with students, you know, a whole variety of things that I think would complement um, the overall college experience. And, um, but again, it's, it's, it's well, a I mean, complex question. Yeah, it, it's a complex question, but it, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting concept because now if you ask any student this day and age, you know, can you go and find the information? They know where to find it. They can do the research on the internet. If it's just information, right? I think where the faculty add value, and I think about this as well when, when new graduates come into my company, it's the same thing. You, you, you kind of get mentored by senior people, by your colleagues, and in the university setting, you have a problem in one of your projects, which are the authentic projects you want to make them work on. And you talk to somebody who's maybe been there before and done done it before, right? And, and someone like yourself who, who may be able to, you've seen 50 different projects and you can see the patterns and the mistakes that people make. And so you, you nudge them and you help them along. That's where I think faculty could be incredibly valuable as opposed to just deriving a differential equation. Right? Sure. No, I, I think you're right. I think those are the kind of conversations we should have, and I think we are starting to have those conversations. And I think, I think they'll get, I think they'll get moved to the forefront. Unfortunately, I think it's going to get moved to the forefront for the wrong reason. It's going to get moved to the forefront because of the budget problems. Okay. Right. And yeah. so it's yeah. not going to be moved to the forefront for the right reason, which is let's reimagine higher education to make it better. It's right. It's, yeah. yeah. But you know that that's a forcing function of budget. There's no question about that. Oh yeah, I know, and I could just see there's the real the real reasons, the the significant improvements you could make, but the feeling that somebody's going to get is I'm being cut, or this is happening just for budget reasons, and so they don't believe in the the big picture. That's yeah, that's that's really hard. And you know, I I, I think it's kind of interesting these days, and, and we we pride ourselves uh, as a company that's involved in controls. I'm sure you do as well. That now. The way the world is, it's kind of the heartbeat of the modern world. Complex systems, that's where it's right. at for us, right? Yeah, is, yeah. is that something that you're seeing uh, kind of proliferate through different departments, which maybe 
historically didn't focus on controls or communications or, or now that we have so many devices, a modern device has to have that kind of intelligence built in and, and be connected. Is that something which is being built into your thinking now? No, I, th I think it is to some extent. I mean, I think that uh, my experience is that different uh, areas, you know, they, they make up new names and new words for the same thing. Um, so, <laughs> so sometimes you have to look at what they're talking about and realize that they're, you know, they're, they're talking about what, what, what you've been talking about with a different, in a different language, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. But I do think systems thinking is starting to permeate everything that we do, whether it be right. uh, you know, uh, how to handle the pandemic, you know, whether it would be, you know, uh, how to clean and, and deliver water, you know, start to look at, you know, not just water that you drink, but also with a source of that water, the water that you drink, the wastewater that it produces, looking at that as a system. Okay, though, I think those kinds of ideas are, are permeating engineering and, and other and other areas as well. Listen, well, the, the other thing that I wanted to just touch base on you before before we finish was, you know, you've you've had a lot of PhD students through your uh, through your labs over the years, and 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 right now there's so much uh, low level just satellite work going on around the world to help communications around the world. I mean, are there any kind of any any people that you're proud of that you've you've, you've taken through the system who are now making a difference to the world in that sense, improving communications with satellite work? Well, um, you know, so I've been very fortunate to have some of the uh, really bright students uh, over the times who have taught me probably more than I taught them. But um, my PhD students are at the Jeff Propulsion Laboratory working on um, some of these planetary landers, uh, working on interplanetary navigation. I have students at Goddard. Uh, I have students at Johnson Space Center. Uh, some of my students have uh, started their own companies. I have a student who uh, is started a company that has uh, won a, an award, uh, a grant contract, you know, to land at the South Pole of the Moon here next year. So, um, so I, I would say that, and certainly I have I have PhDs and master students who are working on some of the small satellites uh, stuff. I mean, even in the small satellites that I have on orbit right now, we have three small satellites on orbit right now. Um, 23 undergraduates worked on those satellites and, um, really? and three or four uh, master students, 23 undergraduates. And uh, they all went to work, um, well, they're either still with, with the program because it's still going, or they went to work at some, of the, at some of the big companies, at some of the small companies, at some of the startup companies. So again, this is putting into practice what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, how are you integrate you know real projects into their education so so again with regard to my students you know i mean they're you know they're they're part of my family i i keep in touch with almost every one of my students still to this day i'm i'm their you know their children's godparents i'm you know you name it uh, really but i think that's what makes this that's what makes this worthwhile okay is is the students and the interaction that I have with the students. And when I move, you know, when I moved from Texas to Milwaukee, you know, my graduate students, except for one, moved with me. And when I moved from Milwaukee to USF, my graduate students moved with me. 
because um, you know we're we're sort of like a family, okay? We're we're doing we're in this together. We're 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 in this we're in this together. So um, so I'm very proud of my students. It's it's what makes my job. Um, you know, in the quiet moments when I wonder why I'm a dean. Yeah, you know, I've been a dean now for 11 years. And uh, yeah. in the quiet moments yeah. when I wonder about why do I still do that, I think about these things that we're talking about today. Um, the students and the education, higher education, where it's going to, and and uh, I hope that I can have a positive influence, you know, on that direction. No, I, I mean, I, I, we have, and I think I've known you because I think I met you just after you became a dean at uh, Marquette. So, you know, I've seen what you managed to what you achieved there, and I'm seeing, witnessing what you've achieved at University of South Florida. We've got many, like common friends that, 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 that we know that, 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 that see the way you work and the fact you put it into practice, these ideas aren't just you making it up at the top of your head, that's the way you live and breathe. And so right. the story about your students being a family and still being in touch and being, making you a godparent or whatever, I mean, that, that, that's music to my ears because I think that's the way the world should be. But I'd like to kind of end on, on a story you told me, you know, you said at the very beginning, you wanted to be an astronaut and you mentioned uh, an astronaut's name. Tell me the story about how you got to actually know that astronaut. I, I won't say his name, I'll let you tell the story. Okay, so when I when I got my master, after I completed my master's degrees, I went to uh, the Draper, Charles Stark Draper Lab. Doc Draper was a faculty member at MIT. Um, and they are the ones who, uh, who built, uh, designed and built the guidance computer for the Apollo missions. So the rendezvous, um, uh, algorithms, the Kalman filter. So at the time, Kalman filtering wasn't quite there yet. The, even the Kalman's papers hadn't been published yet. But the, but the professors at MIT knew about the work of Gauss and others, and so they were already implementing that to some extent. And you may not know, but when the uh, when the uh, when they left the moon, in order to get home, they had to do a rendezvous on the far side of the moon, and that rendezvous had to be successful, or they were not coming home. And it was out of view of the Earth. Okay, so it had to be done there, and of course okay. it, it never failed. Um, so, so I got the I had I don't know how it happened, Paul. We've talked about this before. I don't know how uh, I seem to stumble into these things uh, the way that I do, <laughs> but I stumbled into that. And and the engineers who were there were the ones who uh, you know they knew all the astronauts because the astronauts used to go to Draper, used to fly up to Draper, and you know when they were working on the Apollo program. Well, when I got to Draper, um, the Apollo program had long been done, but the shuttle program was uh, underway. And so, uh, and so I was in the navigation group. So I used to fly to Houston. Uh, I was just a young engineer. I was just learning about estimation and Kalman filtering. And I would tag along with the two, uh, the two engineers, uh, Gene Muller and Peter Katzmeyer. Those are the two who really were central to the Kalman Fleeks, the, the rendezvous filter for shuttle and for Apollo. And, uh, and we would go to, to Johnson Space Center where we would uh, work in a variety of things, but through that process, I got to know and meet a lot, lots of astronauts, okay? And it turns out that one of those astronauts was a PhD student at MIT before uh, he walked on the moon, and that was Buzz Aldrin. And his advisor was Richard Batten, who was the professor at MIT who had hired me uh, to the lab, into the lab. So, um, so uh, Buzz wanted to, uh, at the time, he wanted to uh, look at cycling trajectories, which are the trajectories that he studied for his dissertation. 
which are basically trajectories that go around the moon and back to the earth and around the moon and back to the earth or around Mars and back to the earth without essentially any fuel, okay? Just using gravity swings. And so one day uh, I was at home and I got a phone call and it was this guy that said he was, uh, his name was Buzz Aldrin and he wanted to uh, talk to me. And, um, you know, my friends and I, we, we were practical jokers. And so you know, I thought it was a joke. And so I, I responded by uh, telling him that, yeah, that I was Elvis Presley and that it was good to talk to him. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no, this really is, this really is Buzz Aldrin. I really want to talk to you. And so it turned out that it was him and he put a team together, uh, faculty from Purdue, faculty from Texas, faculty from MIT. And uh, we wrote a paper and we did a study uh, for him. So that's just like one example. Uh, the only other uh, um, astronaut that walked on the moon that I got to know was Alan Bean. And uh, because Alan Bean was a, an artist. He has uh, some very, very wonderful paintings of, of when he was on the moon of his experiences on the moon. And when I taught that class in art, uh, art and engineering class, he was one of my guest speakers. And uh, as a result of that, I got to go and hang out with him in his art studio and learn about how he was, how he was painting and what he was thinking about with regard to color. Because I mean, there's no color on the moon, so that would be a pretty boring painting, but he used color in his paintings. And he, you know, so uh, those are the two that I got to know who were uh, moon, moon walkers. Well, I, that, I that, that's that. two more moon. <laughs> that, that that's two more moonwalkers than I know. <laughs> but no, I mean, you're 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 a living example of what what engineering could be. And honestly, you're, you 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 in the whole time I've known you, you've been very down to earth. You're an easy guy to get along with. We could talk about politics. We could talk about football. We could talk about the military. We could talk about the art. We could talk about engineering. It's a, it's a pleasure, Bob. I, I I wish we could could make this longer, but. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to, to coming down and, and, and seeing you again sometime in the next six months or a year so we can have a drink together and, and, and uh, talk some more. But thanks so much for taking you. Thanks, Paul. Good luck with the project. And uh, I hope uh, my contribution was was worthwhile. <laughs> oh, oh, I think it's going to be worthwhile. I've, I've got a few engineers in my in my company kind of waiting, waiting to see what happens here. They All just right. said, well, they said to me was actually, they, they, they said, don't mess up. Don't upset Bob. Right, that's that's the message. <laughs> no, you, can't, you can't upset me, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks very much, Bob. Take care. Take care. All right, bye bye.